Well, welcome to 2023. Uh, I want to kickstart this year with a focus on three uh, weeks of basic practices that we're going to consider together over the upcoming few weeks together and what it means to follow Jesus. You know, some of you have resolutions. Some of you had resolutions. You know what I'm saying. And some of you have resolutions. Nonetheless, those are more about like goal setting and willpower and trying to force your way into being somebody different. And sometimes that can be helpful for you. Sometimes it's more difficult. But I want to invite you into something more along the lines of what would be called a rule of life. And that's a, a trellis or a guide that helps you kind of consider values and rhythms and practices that will move you towards following Jesus. And so in the next three weeks, we're going to be considering some of those practices. This week, we're going to talk about, this morning, we're going to talk about connecting with God in prayer. Um, Next week, we're going to be talking about embracing humility. And the following week, we're going to be talking about intentional kingdom living, and then we're going to have some practical opportunities uh, about local care on that Sunday. But I want to begin here. There are a few things that are more constricting to our pursuit of connection with God than our phones. There are a few things that can constrict your, like immediately suffocate your life in connection with God than the phone that you have or the watch that you might be wearing. Uh, Studies are informing us as in real time that when our devices are left unchecked, they're damaging our families and they're damaging our communities. So according to a lot of research, one firm called the D. Scott, uh, D. Scout, they, they said that typical owners of, typical owners of mobile devices touch their phones 2,617 times a day. That's typical. That's not even like, you might be like, I'm not really typical, I'm kind of like a little more on the extreme. Like, cool, welcome, glad you're here. But this is just for the average user uh, touches the device 2,617 times. Uh, Apple has confirmed that iPhone users, and some of you are like Android users, like, I'm not going to listen to what Apple says. Shut up and just listen. So Apple has confirmed that iPhone users unlock their devices six to seven times an hour. So on average, Apple tells us that. Smartphones are basically slot machines that are fitting within our pocket. Social apps are designed to hook us, designed to provoke our brains to desire dopamine, and there's this, like, this whole interior reality that's going along within that. Uh, according to health.com, I read this this last week and, and kind of shocked. I don't know if I have this quote up here, but I'll read it to you nonetheless. It says, many of the leading innovators in digital technology have chosen to shield their own families from the devices for as long as possible. Consider this. Steve Jobs didn't let his kids use the iPad. And Bill and Melinda Gates did not let their children have a phone until they were 14. It was shocking to me. The very ones that are creating these devices recognize that they need to guard their kids from the very thing they created. And here we are, the water, the, the water we're swimming in, the air we're breathing. See, when left unchecked, these things can damage our families and communities, yes, and also they can constrict our connection with God. Distraction is a great enemy in our day and can keep us from connecting with God. For those that hear this and just want to run to a farm, I know there's some of you in here. Like You hear data about a phone. You're like, oh, if only I lived in Jasper, Georgia, where no one knew where I was, then that wouldn't be an issue for me. And I would say you can't run from your heart. You can't run from the desires that are within Your circumstances may change, but your heart's longing to be connected to silence what's happening on the inside of you will follow you wherever you go. It's your heart that yearns to be in mine, to be entertained, connected, 
and to not feel what's happening on the inside. So it's good to call it what it is. But that's our reality, and that is a constrictor to connecting with God. Some resources I would give, there's many others that are out there. One is The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. I would, I would encourage that as a resource if you're looking to kind of learn more about some of this stuff. A book called TechWise Family by Andy Crouch would be a great resource around kind of technology within the home that I would, I would submit to you. But again, don't, don't lie. Remember, we are at church. We feel this. We feel this constriction. We feel this draw. For me, it feels like every time I sit down, I got like 15 minutes, 20 minutes to be alone. You sit down, you get your Bible, you've just made your coffee, you sit down, and like, bam, I feel this need to go check my phone. Am I alone here? You ever feel that? Okay, so, so again, like, it's okay, we don't need to lie at church. So, so that's not by accident. That's not by accident. They're the enemy and our brain's desire for dopamine would love to do anything to keep us from connecting with God. And what I'm inviting you into and what ultimately Jesus is inviting you to is a posture that wages war against our culture and, and it pursues a distinct, different way. See, the noise of the modern world makes us deaf to the voice of God. The noise, the busyness, the distraction of our modern world silences the voice of God. It drowns his voice out. How do we pray and read the scripture and sit under teaching or rest well on Sabbath when every chance we get, we reach out for the dopamine dispenser that is our phone? And I've learned that we need to become skeptical of our devices because they're stealing our joy and the opportunity we have to connect with God. I've learned that we need to create more intentional boundaries. I need to do the same. See, if the phone isn't your distraction, maybe it's something else. Maybe you're like, man, I've been using a flip phone for years. Well, don't be a Pharisee. There might be something else for you that might be different than than others. And nonetheless, we need to evaluate what that might look like. So, Sojourn family, I pray and desire as we consider this morning about connecting to Jesus that we would have a renewed vision of what it looks like to connect with God. I have two passages I want us to consider this morning. The first would be a blueprint in John 15. The second would be a scaffolding, which would be in Luke 11. So in John 15, if you turn there, um, we're gonna actually be getting into the gospel of John this fall and next spring, which is gonna be really fun, but that's a ways away. So we're gonna dip our toe into John even now. So blueprints are like visions. They are the things that kind of laid out by an architect, and these blueprints are, are laying out a vision of what the building could look like. In the same way, Jesus provides a vision for us in John 15 of what it looks like to abide and connect with God. And I'm going to read several verses to us. John 15 reads like this. I am the vine, the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It goes on in verse eight and it says this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. So he gives this picture of a farmer. He gives a picture of a vine. He gives a picture of a branch. 
The Father is the farmer, Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. So some basic principles that we're seeing within here. So farmers intentionally prune their crop to produce more fruit. That's the design. They'll cut back to produce more. Branches are, one other thing we see is branches are connected to vines or they bear no fruit. If you disconnect a branch to a vine, it will not produce fruit. It cannot produce fruit, but when it's connected, it will. The connection is critical along the way. So no one is, is going to assume that the, the vine's going to produce fruit if it's not connected to the vine. It must be connected. Sometimes if we're honest, we expect the, the fruit of this spirit to exude while minimal connection is taking place in our lives. But it goes hand in hand. Our connection to God leads to the fruit of God in our lives. Eugene Peterson, in his version, paraphrase of this text called The Message, says it like this. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood. This is how my father shows who he is. When you produce grapes, when you mature as my disciples. See, our context is a context that is hurried. We live in this distracted age. We have this slot machine within our pockets. And yet Jesus invites us into another way. He invites us into a way of connection. He invites us into a way of abiding that is for all who follow him. Rich Velotis, who's a pastor in Queens, New York, he, he wrote this recently, and I, I feel like it was appropriate for us as we consider this. He says this. He says, if Jesus spent eight hours a day, three, every day for three years with his disciples, he would have spent over 8,000 hours with them. And after all that, they still had major gaps. One hour a week on Sunday will never change people. We need a life that abides in him with the support of others. See, our vision of church in the West has produced so little results because we've expected so little of people. If we look at the life of the disciples, they were deeply connected to Jesus. And when he left, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you my spirit. And we, too, have the opportunity through community to grow together. And we need that space of connection to actually bear fruit. So the, br- the blueprints for us are, the, are, are what we see here, this vision of abiding. Now, the scaffolding. The scaffolding is how you execute on the blueprints. It's the, it's the execution of what is seen on paper now being put together in real life. And so in Luke 11, we see a structure that Jesus builds for us. It's a practice that he provides to us, and that practice that he gives to us is prayer. This practice is found in Luke 11, but I want to set up the scene for us because I think it's important to understand where Luke has, ta- where Luke has been going to see where he ends up in Luke 11. So when the disciples first started following Jesus... There's saw some pretty significant things happen through his life that are worth noting as we eventually find ourselves in Luke 11. Uh, some remarkable things take place. They, they see some authority they'd never seen before. The, the life of Jesus had significant authority in the way that he interacted with people and the way that he spoke. They saw healing, like significant healing within their day. I mean, deliverance from demons, paralytics who literally could not walk, getting up, and walking, withered hands being renewed. He would silence religious leaders. He raised a widow's son in the first several chapters of Luke. He forgave sin in only a way that God could. 
He calms a, a storm with his words. Sovereign over demons, they saw him transfigured. And in all this, they saw all of that, like majestic, profound, miraculous things. But they also saw this other side of Jesus, where five times from Luke 3 to Luke 11, Jesus would go away to a desolate place and pray. We see it in Luke 4, we see it in Luke 5, we see it in Luke 6, Luke 9, and Luke 11. And Luke 5 is an example. We see that Jesus' ministry has begun. We see fame is increasing. We see people are surrounding him. Demands are there. He's feeling pressed on every side. And in that, we read this in Luke 5, 15 and 16. But now even more, the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed to their, of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. I mean, you might think you're busy. Jesus was profoundly busy. There was a level of hospitality that you don't need to have when you close your garage door. Like there was a level of pressure that Jesus felt in his time of people demanding things from him constantly. And in order to meet those demands, what did he do? He prayed. Like his response to the demands that were happening in real time was he's carving out spaces to connect with God. See, as the crowds sought him, he knew he needed something more, and that was connection with God. See, we have demands. You have demands. You have demands at work. You have demands with your family. You have demands with relationships. You have demands in, in parenting. You have demands in communities and all the sort. And how do we deal with the demands that we have? What are the practices? What are the rhythms that you have in your life that help you respond to those demands? See, we don't need an escape from our responses. We don't need to, our responsibilities. We don't need to just move somewhere else. We need a, a vision to connect with God. Our circumstances, if they change, aren't going to change what our hearts need the most. And in that, we need a connection with God. And that's what his disciples feel. So we pick that up. After all that they saw, seeing the interior life of Jesus, this is the stage that's led up to Luke 11. It says this. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he'd finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So the question that the disciples had for Jesus could have asked him anything. After seeing him do almost everything, the one question that the disciples wanted to ask him above all of the things that they saw, all the power that they saw through him, was Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? It's a powerful question that they ask of Jesus. This is gold that we see here. See, what Jesus is going to offer to them is profound. It's a scaffolding that helps us connect with God. We can't overlook the treasure that we're about to read. See, as disciples and learners and students, we must learn Uh, to adhere to what Jesus is about to give to us. And he gives us what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. This is a simplified version. There's a more um, detailed version of Matthew 6. He says this, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So he lays out this, this prayer, 
the Lord's Prayer that we know it as, the Lord's patterned prayer. Within this prayer, there are six movements that are given to us, six movements that Jesus gives to his disciples. Prayer is more than these movements, but it is a track that we can run on to help us flourish in prayer. See, our attempt, we have this attempt, this temptation to to have freedom within our prayer, in our, in our prayer life. But that freedom has actually suffocated us. Sometimes we need training wheels, which I think the Lord's Prayer is, to help us guide ourselves in growing in prayer. Tim Keller says this about the Lord's Prayer. I read this before. He says, The Lord's Prayer may be the single set of words spoken more often than any other in the history of the world. Jesus Christ gave it to us as the key to unlock all riches of prayer. Yet it is an untapped resource, partially because it is so familiar. So Jesus provides these six movements to us. The first movement is our father or adoption. He begins with us focusing ourselves on who God is, our father in heaven or father. So this first movement he gave, here, here's the deal. Let's just be honest. We typically have this understanding of prayer, that we, we come to prayer, we come to God in prayer when we have needs. We got, just lost our job. Somebody's sick. Some kind of emergency's happening. Some kind of circumstantial thing is taking place, and we now need to shoot up a flare. I mean, all of the country did that this last week with the injury of uh, DeMar ha- Hamlin uh, with the bills. Everybody was saying, you need to pray. Pray, pray, pray. What was the response? Nothing wrong with that. What was the response? There was a need that was occurring, and people were saying, because of that, Pray. So that's how we approach God more often times than not. We come to God out of need, out of a circumstantial emergency. That's how we come to God. But Jesus is saying, let me reframe how you understand prayer. Prayer is about reconnecting with who your true identity actually is. We're not going to get to circumstances until much later in the prayer. We're not going to get to a focus on you until much, much, much later in the prayer. It begins by resetting that you have an identity in God that's been given to you because of Jesus by adoption, and you now have a Father in heaven that's secure, more secure than anything in this universe. And before you ask God for anything, begin by remembering who you are because of who he is. That's how prayer begins. Imagine if we approach prayer in that way. The first thing that we do is that we approach God in connection is remembering we have a Father in heaven who's never going to leave you, never going to run away. His love is secure. It's not finite. It is not limited. It is unlimited. It's eternal. It's secure. And in that, we begin by approaching God with this phrase, Father, or Matthew's version says, our Father in heaven. So the first movement as we begin in prayer is this simple statement that we can find security as we approach God through adoption. The second movement is worship. It says, hallowed be your name. You know what it doesn't say? Hallowed be our name. Or hallowed be our tribe. Or hallowed be our country. Or hallowed be our whatever. It begins by saying, hallowed be the name of God. It's provoking worship. Jesus is discipling us through this prayer. And if we take it in the way that Jesus designed for us to take it, I believe it has an opportunity to transform the depth of who we are, to begin by knowing that we have an identity that's so secure. And the second, remember, we're invited into this posture of worship. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. The third movement is lordship. So we have have adoption, we have worship, 
And then we have lordship. Your kingdom come. Or the Matthew version says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, this is not about you. This is not about your circumstances. It's not about you getting what you want. This is a reforming. Jesus is reforming the, the core of who we are to be more focused on his kingdom and less focused on our own by adoption, by worship, by remembering there is one Lord, it is not you, there's one God, and it is not you, and recalibrating ourselves towards that end. The next movement, the fourth movement, is give us each day our daily bread. This is where we enter in and our needs enter in, but, but imagine if we approach God first with our needs. We oftentimes uh, can posture ourselves with a kind of an orphan kind of mentality. And so we begin to beg God for things versus recognizing that we're so unbelievably secure in him and his kingdom. And he's reforming us in that way. And so from that posture of knowing that we're adopted, from that posture of his name and his kingdom, it's from that vantage point that we submit our needs to him. First Peter says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. So it's in this place that we offer to him our anxieties our fears, our doubts, our concerns. He's not scared of any of those. It's from that place we offer him the true realities of our needs and the provision that we need from there. The next movement is is reconciliation, which includes repentance is is an offer to God to allow our hearts to become tender towards the people that we interact with. You know, the gospel is designed to actually change us And his mercy is designed to actually change not how we interact only with him vertically, but how we interact with people horizontally. And so he invites us in this prayer as he's reforming us, as he's discipling us in real time, he's reminding us of the invitation of reconciliation between brother and sister and brother and brother and sister and sister. This place of forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lastly, there's this this invitation, this movement of, of protection. Lead us not into temptation. This is recognition that there is an enemy knocking at our door and his, his desires for us. And so there's this recognition of the fact that we're, we are in a war. And we want to be careful of the temptations of this world. We want to remember that we're secure with our Father in heaven, but we want to ask him to protect us from the things that are around us. I believe that these, these movements are just so significant if we allow them to actually shape who we are. It's one thing to recite the Lord's Prayer because we have to, because we go to a service that requires us to do so. It's another thing when it actually gets into our bones. We actually approach God differently because of it. And I believe that's the scaffolding that Jesus gives to us when it comes to the Lord's Prayer. So for me, I'll I'll take these as tracks for me. Sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and I will not get past our Father in Heaven. In my few minutes that I have, as I get up before the kids kind of just blow up the house, it feels like at times, I'll I'll have a few minutes, and and in that time, I'll just remember I'm secure and I'm loved. I have a Father in heaven who cares for me, and I'll allow that to be the thing that resets who I am. Sometimes I'll work all the way through them. You know, this last week, I was was doing a prayer walk. I don't know if you've ever done prayer walks. Maybe that's weird for you. Um, For me, it's kind of helpful to kind of get out. I'll put my AirPods in, so when I'm talking with God, people don't think I'm going crazy, and so I'll put my AirPods in, maybe that's just insecurity, but whatever, so I'll put the AirPods in, and then I'll just talk freely, as if I'm talking on the phone, kind of am, you know, by faith, uh, and so, so I, I was working through the Lord's Prayer, this was like 15 minutes, this is n- nothing crazy, and I just kind of worked through each movement in my head, and, and I got to the, 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I just, I spent most of my time there focused specifically on that phrase, your will be done. And just for me, it just, whether it was the spirit or just my mind, I just, I found myself just kind of wanting to focus on that. I want your will to be done in my life. I don't want my will to be done. Like, where are there areas in my life where I'm focusing on my will? Like, I want your will to be done. What is happening right there in that moment? Discipleship. That's reforming in my soul, God working within me. That's what happens as we allow this scaffolding to help us work through and connecting with God. There's two things I can't overemphasize to you enough. One is that Jesus desires for connection with you. That is the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel isn't just information. You have been adopted in theory. No, it's in practice that adoption actually has shaped us in such a way that we have a relationship with God who is our Father because of His Son Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And now we're adopted and there's connection there because of the gospel. Can't overemphasize enough the fact that Jesus desires connection with you. And second, I can't overemphasize enough the gift that this prayer can be for us. It's a treasure for us to grow together. Friends, it's this that we're invited into, a a vision of abiding, a scaffolding of the practice of prayer. I want to invite us into this. I want to invite us into this in all of our lives, not just on Sundays, but in our lives, in our meetings, in our decisions, in our goals and aspirations, that we would allow this to become a part of who we are. We live in a day that is largely undisciplined regarding the things of God. And we're seeing the results of that in negative ways. And we're invited into the discipline of prayer, connecting with God. Friends, we are invited into this way to become a person who becomes less and less concerned about looking after ourselves and more and more convinced that God cares for us. Dallas Willard says this. He says, it is love of God admiration and confidence in his greatness and goodness and the regular experience of his care that free us from the burden of looking out for ourselves. And the more and more we behold him, the song we just sang, take our eyes off of ourselves and put it on him and we remember his care and goodness and kindness, the, more, the less and less we feel the need to look out for ourselves because we know we have another who's caring for us. And we don't stumble into that. It's the practice of the disciplines that help us towards that end. So I enter this year with a renewed desire to connect with God throughout the day. For me, I want to do it in the morning. For me, I want to try to find what, there's like five minutes between meetings. I get it. There's days that are just crammed. I'm trying to find a, a small space. If you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, there's, it can be busy nonstop. But trying to find a, a small window in my day where I can just reconnect midday. And then before, before bed, to look back upon the day and see God's fingerprints and, and hand and, and work in my life and his presence along the way. Friends, my, my name is Ernie, and I have a deep temptation to be distracted. Maybe I'm alone. I don't think that I am. And I do believe that as one of the pastors here, I, I believe that the Spirit is drawing us towards this end, to connect with God, this invitation of connecting with him. I want to encourage you to uh, not ignore the, the side effects of your phone and the distractions that you have. I want to invite you into a vision of abiding. I want to invite you into the scaffolding or the practice of prayer. And I recognize the enemy would love to 
keep you, uh, he would love to, for you to do anything but connect with God. So my question for you is what disciplines do you need to anchor yourself more de- deeply in God? What disciplines do you need to anchor yourself more deeply in God? What does it look like for you to connect with God more practically, to care for your soul in that way? What does that look like? I invite us into this. I, I, I truly believe that, that the Spirit, as we reset upon this year, is, is inviting us into connection, inviting us into to prayer, inviting us into more deeply following Him in that way. And I don't, I don't know where you've been. Maybe you come out of 2022, and it, was, it just felt like, man, your hair was on fire. Just like the mercies of God are new every day, man, the, the mercies of God are new every year. And so as you enter into this year, what, what does that look like for you to, to lean into this vision of abiding, to lean into the scaffolding of connecting with God in prayer? My desire is that we would take steps together. I want you to flourish. I want your soul to thrive in a, in a, in a life, in a, in a world that's filled with distraction. And it takes work. It takes intentionality. We don't stumble into godliness and we don't stumble into becoming who Jesus invited us to be. It takes intentionality and effort. I mean, there's joy on the other side. There's peace on the other side. There's love and kindness and the, the joys of the life of God on the other side. And I invite us into that. Amen.